It's good to be together this morning. If we haven't met yet, I'm Sam. I work mostly with our young adults here at Highlands, and I'm excited to continue our time in God's Word in the Armor of God series today. So before we dive in, I want to highlight our new city catechism question of the week. I've been, well, the part I've enjoyed most of our initiative this year has been the songs. I don't know if you've been listening to songs with your kids, but when we do these questions, I, I always have the song stuck in my head. I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to sing it for you this morning. Um, but here's our question for the week. What else does Christ's death redeem? Every part of fallen creation. Let's pray together. Father, as we dive into your word, as we look at uh, the first piece of armor today, we give you this time. I ask that you might guide us, direct us by your spirit. Keep me away from anything that is false, anything that's untrue, unhelpful. And may you work in our hearts that we might not just be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word as well. So we give this time to you. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my top five favorite movies (laughs) is none other than the 1998 Disney classic, The Parent Trap. Not sure if you've seen it. It was actually a remake of an original. Some of you, I won't ask to put your hands in the air, actually remember the original. I don't. Um, But this movie has always been one of my favorites growing up as a kid, and it's never left my top five. Now, if you've never seen it or maybe you've seen it, allow me to recount a little bit of the plot. Nick James and Elizabeth Parker meet on board the cruise liner, the Queen Elizabeth II. And they're quickly infatuated with one another, and they fall in love. They decide to get married on the ship. They'd only known each other a couple days. So they do, they get married, fall in love, and they find themselves pregnant with twins, with identical twins, and they give birth to Hallie and Annie. But shortly after the birth of the two girls, mom and dad have an irreconcilable argument, and they decide to get divorced. They separate, they go their separate ways, but they have a unique custody agreement, don't they? Mom takes Annie to London, lives there, while dad takes Hallie to Napa Valley, California, lives there. And the two girls grow up knowing that their parents were divorced, but no idea that they have a twin. Until mom and dad, unbeknownst to each other, send both girls to the same summer camp. And the girls meet. They find out that not only do they have the same birthday, they have the same mom and dad. They're twins. Now, an average, normal 12-year-old girl, when they find that out, what would they do? Get on the phone, call mom and dad and say, you didn't want to tell me I had a twin? But that's not what these two girls do. Instead, they develop this elaborate plot not to tell their parents, but to switch places to try to get their parents to meet and fall back in love. And the rest of the movie follows their strategic plan. But for a moment, I want you to imagine what it might be like at the age of 12 to realize you'd been lied to by your parents your whole life, to realize that you actually had an identical twin that you were separated from at birth. It'd be a little unnerving, wouldn't it? Maybe you've had a similar fear, at least a similar question has gone through your mind. Maybe you've asked, what if I'm actually adopted? You ever thought that before? Maybe we've heard horror stories of people building their life on a lie. Uh, Maybe it's a retired couple who hear about this incredible investment opportunity. So they put all of their retirement money toward this investment scheme only to find out it's a scam and everything's gone. Or maybe it's an individual who meets someone online and they fall in love only to find out that 
After they're married, the individual just wanted their money and they run away with nothing left in their bank account. Maybe we have a fear of building our life on a lie, on an untruth. Now, if we're honest, we all want the truth, don't we? We desire the truth. We hunt for the truth. But finding truth in the world that we live in sometimes feels impossible. That Facebook post, is that true? That news article, is that true? That rumor that sounds too good to be true, is that true? I don't know. In the words of the poet Henry David Thoreau, he said, rather than love, rather than money, rather than fame, give me truth. Give me truth. We need truth. We need truth about our reality. We need truth about our world. We need truth about what's right and wrong. But there's an even deeper truth, more foundational to our life than the discovery of an unknown twin. It's spiritual truth, isn't it? If truth forms the foundation of life, then spiritual truth forms the foundation of eternal life. If we can't discern spiritual truth, we're going to be in trouble. Eternity is literally weighing in the balance. And questions or doubts about our spiritual life, about spiritual truth can quickly arise within our hearts, can't they? They sound like this. The gospel, the good news about Jesus, is it, is it true or is it too good to be true? Or how about this? How about the Bible? It, it seems to conflict with our culture over and over again. So what's true? Is, is God's word true or is God's word just outdated? What's truth? Or how about all these other religions in the world that have these competing objective truth claims? Are they all true or is just one of them true? What's truth? Where do I find truth? Are you asking those questions today? They're good questions to ask. And if you are, or if you have, you're not alone. Jesus has an interesting interaction with a man named Pilate. Pilate's the governor of the region, and Jesus is on trial right before his crucifixion. Here's what Jesus said in John 18, 37. Jesus answered to Pilate, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And then Pilate said to him, What's truth? What a question, isn't it? You know what he's asking. Is truth objective or is it subjective? Are all these other religions in the world, are, this, are they just talking about different parts of the same elephant? Or is one right? What is truth? So as we continue our series on the armor of God today, we're going to look at the first piece, the belt of truth. We've got to understand a little bit about what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 6 when he talks about the belt. If you have a maybe a more literal translation, it might read the following, girding up your loins with truth. Now, personally, I'm thankful for the little more readable translation like the ESV, because if I'm honest, the phrase girding up your loins cre creeps me out just a little bit. <laughs> so let's talk about putting on the belt of truth. Now, maybe you put a belt on this morning. <clears throat> I did. And if I would have forgotten a belt this morning, I'd be preaching with my fingers through my belt loops, right? Because I wouldn't want my pants to fall down. Now, a belt forms an imp important purpose for us today, but for a, a soldier in the Roman army, a belt was even more important than they serve for us today. A belt would literally hold the entire armor together. Before a soldier would leave their house, the first thing they would do would be tie the belt. It was a big deal. It held everything. It even held the, the sword, the only offensive piece of weapon that we see in the armor of God, right? It held everything. Truth holds the armor together. Interesting. 
truth also holds us together. So today we're going to look after truth. We're going to seek after truth. I love Jesus' promise uh, to truth seekers in John 8, verse 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to seek after the truth. We're going to search for the truth. So we're going to seek after Christ. So here's where we're going. Three things that I want us to remember today. We've got to embrace the truth, teach the truth, and tell the truth. And if you're taking notes, I just gave you my three points. So that's not permission to check out, by the way. But first, we have to embrace the truth. Now, if we're going to embrace the truth, then we have to understand the opposite. We have to understand deceit, lying, falsehood. Have you ever considered where deceit comes from? Where lying comes from? When Jesus is talking to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, he doesn't mince his words. John 8, 44, you're of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. You see what he's saying, right? Those are harsh words to the religious leaders. That Satan, out of his own character, speaks the language of lying. Just as you and I might speak as our first language, English or Spanish or Krundi or Ukrainian or whatever language you speak, Satan speaks lies because it flows from his character. It flows from who he is. He is the father of lies. And Satan has been speaking lies since the beginning. Think of some of the most famous lies that Satan has fired at God's people. Genesis chapter 3, the fall, the Garden of Eden. Satan takes the form of a serpent. And what does he say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? You know what he's saying. Does God love you? Does God care about you? Does God really have your best interest in mind? Don't you want to know more than God? He's firing a lie at Adam and Eve. And they ate the fruit. Think about the lie that Satan fired at the Israelites all throughout history from Moses all the way through the prophets. You realize that you can worship God and the gods of the Canaanites, right? That he's just one of many. What arrow did he fire at the religious leaders when they encountered Jesus? Yeah, this Jesus guy, ah, he's not the Messiah. He's just another teacher. Wait for the real one to come down the road. What arrow does Satan fire throughout church history, which was the spark of the Protestant Reformation? Jesus plus. Yeah, if you want to be saved, if, if you want salvation, if you want eternal life, believe in Jesus and do good works. Believe in Jesus and get baptized. Believe in Jesus and give to the church. Believe in Jesus and spend money on indulgences and then you'll get out of purgatory after a million years. Jesus plus. It's a lie, isn't it? You and I are engaged in a cosmic war between God's truth and Satan's deceit that has been going on for thousands of years. Satan's strategy hasn't changed. He continues to fire lies at God's people, but the lies have changed. And we have to be well-versed in identifying the lies that Satan is firing at the church today. So I have three. We could identify a hundred, couldn't we? I have three lies that are important for us to call out and expose. Here's the first, the first big lie. Truth comes from you. Truth comes from you. I'm convinced this is the biggest 
and the most influential lie in our culture. It's a form of moral relativism. It says you can be who you want to be. You can believe what you want to believe. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. But our culture has taken moral relativism even a step farther that someone doesn't have the opportunity just to select truth outside of themselves. No, the, the source of truth comes from inside the individual. Whatever someone feels becomes their truth. It's everywhere in our world. It's everywhere in our culture, isn't it? It's the follow your heart sermon. It's maybe what we'd call Disney discipleship. It emerges in everything, sports and social media, movies and TV, education. It sounds like this, be who you want to be, dream big, shoot for the stars. Whatever you feel, that must be true. Don't let anyone get in the way of you becoming who you want to be. Your heart will never lead you astray. You realize it's this worldview, it's this lie that has paved the way for the sexual revolution because it's completely dismantled any set of moral absolutes, setting the human heart as the foundation of truth. As long as behavior is consensual, as long as no one's getting hurt, then do whatever you want. If it makes you happy, it's completely gotten rid of moral absolutes. Our world says something like this. If a person feels like their gender was wrongly assigned at birth, then of course they should seek a change because that's how they feel. You see how it's built on the same foundation. That truth comes from here. We shouldn't at all be surprised at the direction our culture has gone because our world has bought in to the big lie. That truth is here. Actually, our world has taken this lie a step farther. If you're a parent, do not miss this. This is what our world preaches. Truth comes from inside of you. Evil comes from outside of you. We see it everywhere. Be who you want to be. Dream big. Shoot for the stars. Follow your heart. The, our world teaches that the human heart is basically good, that your desires generally won't lead you astray. And that if someone pushes back against your desires, that's evil. Evil comes from outside of you. Huh. Doesn't the Bible, doesn't a Christian worldview teach the total opposite? Evil comes from inside of us. Truth comes from outside of us. No wonder sometimes it feels like Christianity and our culture are like oil and water because they're built on two completely different foundations. The Bible does not mince words when it talks about the danger of unsanctified, non-Holy Spirit-inspired heart desires. Think of Jeremiah 17.9. This is not a happy verse. The heart is deceitful above all things, and who can understand it? Who can know it? It gets even better in James. James 1 verse 14 says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by Satan. Is that what it says? No. We're lured and enticed by our own desire. That's kind of horrifying, isn't it? James is saying that at times we are our own worst enemy. That Satan can hang the carrot in front of our mouth, but nothing outside of us will make us bite. The desire to give in to sin comes from in us, not outside of us. Evil comes from in us, truth comes from outside of us. Even as a believer, if you know Christ today, there's still this pull, this allure, this desire for sin. 
It's going to be there every day for the rest of our life until we're glorified, until we meet Jesus in eternity. But we can't unilaterally follow our heart's desires. Our feelings cannot be trusted as our true north. There are going to be times in our life, probably every day, when we have to deny our desires. We cannot always do what we want. We cannot always get what we want. We cannot always be who we want to be. And we certainly can't create truth. Only God can create truth. But there's this promise, Psalm 37, that when we delight ourselves in the Lord, then He'll give us the desires of our heart. I love that promise. That after we continually seek after the Lord, over time, He's going to change and conform and grow our desires to look more and more like His. What a promise. So if truth comes from outside of us, then what's truth? It's God's Word, isn't it? Truth comes from God. Truth comes from His Word. It's what Jesus prayed for His disciples in John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Instead of following our hearts, we've got to follow his word. He is our absolute truth. He is our center. He is our compass. He is our true north. That's the first big lie. Here's the second big lie that Satan fires at our culture. Jesus is not the only way. Jesus is not the only way. It's the coexist bumper sticker. It's the question, why can't we all just lay aside our differences? Why can't all these religions just agree to disagree? It's all different paths to the same destination right? Or another version of the same lie is universalism, which teaches in the end, everyone will be saved. If Satan can convince a churchgoer to bite the apple of universalism or inclusivism, they embrace a false gospel. It might look attractive on the outside, but on the inside, it's filled with poison. Jesus is pretty clear. John 14, 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the only way. The Bible is clear that everyone, the gospel is available to all people, but not everyone will choose to believe in Christ. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate's narrow, the way is hard, that leads to life, those who find it are few. It's a sobering verse, isn't it? You know, there's a chance that you walked in the door today seeking after truth, for meaning, for purpose. He's here. His name's Jesus. That if you're looking for truth, it starts by admitting that you're a sinner, that your sin has created this chasm between you and God that you could never dream of crossing, that we've earned from our own sin, eternal separation from God in a literal place called hell. But Jesus came. 
He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. That anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. It's the greatest gift. It's the greatest promise. It's the greatest truth. And if you want to find truth, if you want to build your life on truth, it starts with the gospel. It starts with believing in Christ for your salvation. Don't leave today without knowing that you know Christ. Now, if you know Christ, we're not immune from the arrows from the enemy, are we? And sometimes the arrows can be subtle. Sometimes they can be sneaky. Sometimes they can go undetected. But these arrows sometimes can handcuff believers for days, weeks, months, even years. That's our third big lie, is this. You can't overcome this temptation. It's a lie from the enemy. Have you ever believed that one? I have. This desire, the pull towards sin, it's just too strong. I can't say no. I just have to say yes. you believe that before? Sin never satisfies because sin is never stagnant. Then Satan tries to get us to believe another lie that there's not consequences. That's false. The momentary pleasure of sin is never worth the monument of consequences. So if the lie is you can't overcome the temptation, what's the corresponding truth? It's 1 Corinthians 10.13. I love this passage. If you don't have this highlighted in your Bible, if you haven't started working on memorizing this, this this is good stuff. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. Don't miss this. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see what Paul's saying? God is sovereign even over your temptation. There is no temptation that has ever overtaken us that we can't resist. We can say no to every single temptation that comes into our life. It's incredible. Satan doesn't have unilateral power. He lives and acts on a leash. God will never let us be tempted beyond our ability. What a promise. Now, (laughs) does that mean that resisting temptation is always easy? No. Sometimes resisting temptation takes some radical measures. It certainly starts with surrender, doesn't it? By saying, I can't do this on my own. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to give me the strength to fight this battle. Radical measures include not fighting alone. If you're trying to fight against temptation alone over and over again, you're probably not winning. You need to let somebody in to do battle with you. Maybe it means putting restrictions on your phone, driving home a different way from work, getting a new group of friends, not having any alcohol in the house. So many different things could be considered radical but necessary to resist that temptation. Don't believe the lie. You can overcome through the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are our three big lies. And sometimes we like to blame Satan on our sin, don't we? Sometimes we like to say something like, yeah, Satan made me do it. That's a lie, that blame game that went all the way back to the garden. But sin, the temptation, can't blame anybody else for. So then after we embrace the truth, then what do we do next? Number two, we teach the truth. It's our second principle, second point tonight. Do we embrace the truth? Two, then we teach the truth. To teach the truth, we've got to identify the truth, right? And truth comes from here, doesn't it? 
Truth comes from God's word. That if we want to know truth, we've got to be in God's word. Our relationship with God's word has to be more consistent than coming to church on Sunday mornings and a couple devos during the week. We've got to read it and study it and memorize it and talk about it. This has to be our source of truth. Our relationship with God's word must be strong. Because before we can teach the truth to anyone else, we've got to teach it to ourselves. Which means we've got to identify that the arrows that Satan fires at us. Maybe Satan's firing an arrow at you that sounds like this. You can't be forgiven. Yeah, that sin you committed, God doesn't love you. Yeah, that sin you committed, yeah, you did that one too many times. You exhausted forgiveness. That's an attack from the enemy, isn't it? We grab out the sword of the Spirit and we fight back with 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe the enemy has been firing the arrow of spiritual doubt. You know you're a Christian. You know you believed in Jesus. You've seen the Holy Spirit working in your life. But there's this thought that says, are you sure you know Jesus? Are you sure you believed in him? Are you sure you're good enough? That's not the point, is it? But the enemy continues to fire that arrow. We fight back with Romans 8 verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What a promise. Or maybe the enemy fires an arrow that sounds like this. Yeah, that sin, yeah, it's not a big deal. Everybody's doing it. What's the problem? And we fight back with 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 3. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain, that you run, that you flee from immorality. We fight back with the sword of the Spirit. Maybe those are verses that need to be written on the bathroom mirror, on the background of your phone, memorized, meditated on, shared with friends, prayed through. We've got to fight back against the lie. Preach to the mirror before you preach to anybody else. And then when we've internalized God's truth to our own life, then we can begin sharing it with others. Then we can be teaching others. Parents, grandparents, volunteers in our student ministry, teaching the truth to the next generation does not happen by accident. It doesn't. And when we look at the enemy's strategy in our world today, he's continually firing arrows of lies at our young people over and over again. So if we're going to sit back on our hands and, and not proactively teach a Christian worldview, teach Scripture to our kids, then we're not going to win the battle. We've got to be diligent. We've got to be aware of what our kids are learning from their friends. We've got to be aware of what kids are learning in the classroom. We've got to be aware of the Disney discipleship that's happening as they watch TV and watch movies. And if we see some that follow your heart mentality, then we've got to be quick to correct it and point back to Scripture. Investing, teaching the next generation takes a lot more intentionality than just dropping our kids off on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night. It happens day in and day out, continually pointing our kids to the truth of Scripture. And there's going to be moments where we have to confront the lie within, a cult, within our culture, where we have to expose a lie. And those are conversations that aren't easy, but they're important. And how do we do that? Well, I think Jesus provides a great template for us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He says this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. <laughs> Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Interesting verse, isn't it? 
This might be the only time in scripture where a snake is painted in somewhat of a positive light, which I'm okay with because I hate snakes. But think, innocent as a dove, it's hard to imagine a more peaceful animal than a dove, isn't it? It's a universal symbol of peace. But sometimes when Christians are engaging in truth conversations with a coworker, with a family member, with a friend, with a child, with a teacher, whoever it might be, even if it's online, sometimes Christians can look a little more like a bull in a china shop than a peaceful dove. Our, our speech has to be gracious, seasoned with salt, innocent like a dove. But then we also get to be wise as a serpent. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> well, I've got one idea. We've got to get really good at asking good questions. It's amazing how with the right question, we can point out the insanity of a cultural lie in a moment. And this isn't original to me. Um, you know who did this? Jesus. When the religious leaders came at Jesus and said, by what authority are you doing these things? You know what Jesus could have done? He could have smacked his hand down on the table and said, I'm the son of God. That's the authority. But he didn't. He replied with a question that left the religious leaders speechless that they didn't have a reply and they just kind of walked away. It was even more effective than demanding authority, wasn't it? Sometimes the best thing that we can do is ask really good questions before we start making statements. There's going to be moments where we have to expose the lie within our culture, where we engage in a difficult conversation. Those are conversations that should always happen face-to-face, not virtually. Facebook warriors generally don't convince people of anything. Those are conversations that we need to remember we're having with people who are created in God's image. We need to treat them that way. Love should motivate every conversation. We have to embrace the truth. Then we teach the truth. Then third, we have to tell the truth. Tell the truth. It shouldn't surprise us that truth-telling, honesty, is important to God because truth is connected to God's character. It's who God is. God is true. He is the definition of truth. So when we speak truth, we're actually reflecting God's character. Therefore, deceit, lying, does not thrill our Heavenly Father. It rounds out the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Thou shalt not bear false witness is number nine. Think of the seven deadly sins in Proverbs chapter 6. A lying tongue is number two on the list. It hurts God's heart when we tell a lie. But even farther than that, when we tell an untruth, we're not reflecting the character of God. We're reflecting the character of our spiritual enemy, Satan. Or a step farther, when we tell a lie, we are actively advancing the kingdom of our enemy, not the Lord. There's many different ways believers might be tempted to share a lie, tell an untruth. Maybe one would be (laughs) what we call fake news in our world today. It's all over the internet, isn't it? Fake news spreads five times faster than real news online. We just have to be careful what we post, what we send, what we share. If something's sensational, if it doesn't have good sources, if it comes from a certain group of websites, chances are it might not be true. We just got to be careful that what we're sharing, what we're spreading is true and not false. Another way believers might be tempted to be deceitful is something we call gossip. Happens every time we pass along negative information about another person when we have nothing to do with the problem, nothing to do with the solution. Sometimes we'll 
might be helpful to use what we could call the, the gossip test. I'll pick on Pastor Jared since he was up here this morning. Don't worry, I'll make myself the bad guy. Maybe I'm about to share something about Jared with another person. Be wise to pause and ask a couple questions. How would Jared feel about me sharing this information with this person at this moment? If the answer is, eh, I don't think he'd be okay with that. What I'm about to engage in is likely gossip. It'd probably be wise for me to bite my tongue. Gossip is easy. It's way easier to talk about someone than deal with a problem. But when we engage in gossip, we're destroying the body. We've got to be a church family that's willing to engage in difficult conversations instead of talking about people behind their back. Instead of sweeping things under the rug and letting bitterness develop in our hearts, we've got to be willing to engage. Reconciliation is at the heart of Christ, isn't it? We've got to be willing to have difficult conversations and reject the temptation to gossip. Maybe we're just tempted in general dishonesty. This list could be long, couldn't it? Cheating on our taxes, taking longer breaks than allowed at work, and telling a spouse a white lie to get out of the penalty box, cheating in school. Or how about this? Using social media to paint a picture of life that is anything but accurate. How about lying about achievements, education, or knowledge like a recent representative did from the state of New York? Or allowing the coworker or family member to get thrown under the bus when it was really my fault, but I didn't own up to the mistake. Not following through on commitments, half-truths, white lies, polite lies, deceptions, they all come from the same source. They're deceitful. They're from the devil. They're not from Jesus. There's a chance, as you thought about the Armor of God series, there was one message you wanted to skip, and it was this one. But you didn't know what we were talking about today, so you accidentally wandered in the door and didn't feel like wandering out when you heard we were talking about the belt of truth. There's a chance that maybe... Maybe you're not living an honest life. There's a chance that maybe you're caught in a, a web of lies. It could look a lot of different ways, couldn't it? Maybe you're a student and you've been living two very different lives. One at church and at home and another one at school. And mom and dad have no idea what's going on. And you've been lying to cover your tracks. Maybe it's a relationship that your spouse doesn't know about, but probably should. And you've been lying to cover your tracks. Maybe it's a sin struggle that you haven't been honest with. Your accountability partner, or anybody really. And you've been hoping it would get better, but it really hasn't. It's just gotten worse. And you've been lying to cover your tracks. Maybe you're in school and you've been continually cheating in your classes on your exams. And now you just don't know how to stop. Maybe you've been stealing from your employer, time, money, resources, whatever it might be. What do you do? 
If that's you, what do you do? It's simple. Tell the truth. It might be the hardest thing you've ever done. But truth-telling reflects the nature of our Savior. Tell the truth, untangle the web of lies before you've got to tell another lie to cover up your tracks. You know, in John 18, I find it ironic. The pilot says, what is truth? When truth is literally standing right in front of him. (laughs) Jesus is our source of truth. That if we run hard after Jesus, if we seek after Jesus, if we desire to know Jesus, we don't have to fear building our life on a lie. That if we follow Jesus and not our heart, we will find truth. Let me pray. Father, what an opportunity to open your word and to talk about something that's near and dear to your heart. Being people that build lives on truths, being people that practice truths, who teach the truth and tell the truth. As a church family, may you give us discernment to be able to identify when the enemy is firing those arrows at us. When the lies are coming, may we identify them and deflect them, fighting back the shield of faith with the sword of the Spirit. Not fighting this battle alone, but leaning in to one another. And may we tell the truth that if there's anyone here even today that needs to untangle that web of lies, give them the courage, the boldness by your Spirit to do that even today. Father, you've been gracious to us. May may you do more than we could even ask or imagine through our church family. In Jesus' name. Amen.